0: Today's episode comes with a warning. We're going on a journey through time to hear about methods of execution, which is bloody horrific, but also captivating in its darkness. I won't be sugarcoating anything, so if you're of a nervous disposition, then probably give this one a miss. I'm Natalie. This is Across the Ages. We're going to start in the ancient world, around the time when Sparta was formed, which was around 1000 BCE. Flaying goes all the way back to the ancient Neo-Assyrian people of Mesopotamia, which we now refer to as the Middle East. The process of flaying used as an execution is done in a very methodical way. Where the flaying started, depending on the executioner, but it was usually at the lower leg or at the butt cheeks. The knife used ranges from a filleting-type knife to a short knife that looks more like a crescent moon with a handle. The idea is to move all of the skin of the victim, with removing the skin in one big piece being preferable. Local butchers were often employed for this task, as they were already super-skilled with skin removal. Flaying has also been used right through cultures and history. In Greek mythology, it's said that Apollo flayed a man who lost to him in a music contest. It was used right up until the 18th century. Following a flaying, the skin was often placed in important places to deter would-be criminals. The main cause of death for the victim was blood loss or shock, but there are reports of people surviving hours or even several days after being flayed alive. In 800 BCE, the world starts to leave the Bronze Age and head into the Iron Age, though do note that the Iron Age begins at different times depending on where you are in the world. Keel hauling is associated with 18th century piracy, but it actually has its origins in ancient Greece. It was an execution as well as a punishment reserved for sailors while out at sea. The classic and unlikely tale of walking the plank usually comes to mind when talking about the execution of sailors, but that comes nowhere near the level of cruelty of keel hauling. The unfortunate sailor was tied to a rope, then chucked overboard. He was then dragged under the ship from one side to the other, or from bow to stern. That's the length of the ship. This sounds horrible from a needing-to-breathe point of view, but what I didn't realise was that wasn't the half of it. Ship bottoms are covered in barnacles, limpets and other shelly marine boys that decide to make the ship their home. I don't know whether you've ever caught your knee on one of these lads at the beach, but I have, and they're razor sharp. Imagine being dragged over a whole village of them. They caused countless lesions on the body of the victim and could even cause whole limbs to be torn off. This process was often prolonged by giving the victim a chance to catch their breath before getting dragged over and over again until they finally succumbed to drowning or even head trauma from being bashed against the boat. In some cases, officers even pushed an oil-soaked sponge into the victim's mouth, which gave them an extra breath of air when they were underwater. This punishment was used right up until the 19th century, with a few isolated incidents happening in the 20th century. Pythagoras of A-squared plus B-squared equals C-squared maths fame was born in 570 BCE, which was the same year when this next method of execution was invented. The tyrannical ruler Phalaris commissioned an instrument of execution that created an exciting spectacle for the baying crowds of ancient Greece. Perilos was the man for the job, and we'll find out in a second that his mind was just as obviously messed up as his client's. Let's put ourselves into the shoes of an unlucky ancient Greek, who has been handed a death sentence. As you are grabbed roughly by the guards, you are dragged towards the town square. You see in the distance a glinting statue, but the sun is reflecting into your eyes and you can't quite process what you're seeing. As you get closer, the form of the statue starts to take shape. It's some kind of animal. Could it be a, a bull? You assume that this is just a decorative statue and look around panicked to try and figure out how you are to meet your end. You are finally brought to a halt in front of a massive bronze bull when a servant steps forward and opens a hatch to reveal that the bull is hollow inside. You are thrown in. This contraption is known as the brazen bull. Perilos created a massive bronze bull that was big enough to fit a human inside. Once inside, a fire was lit underneath the belly of the bull and the victim was roasted to death. As if this wasn't a twisted enough invention... Perilos crafted pipes inside the beast's throat so that the screams of the victim sounded like the bull itself was bellowing with rage. Despite the fact that Phalaris was the one who commissioned it, the cruelty of such an instrument shocked him. So much so that he threw Perilos into his own invention and started to roast him alive. He was pulled out just in time but then swiftly chucked off a cliff. In a perfect serving of just desserts, Twenty years later, Phalaris himself was overthrown and chucked into the brazen bull to meet his end. Not long after, over in ancient Persia, we're going to hear about some of their methods from around 400 BCE. It wouldn't be an episode about execution if I didn't cover crucifixion, which is of course best known to be the fate of Jesus Christ. The method itself, however, dates back another 400 years to the Persians in 400 BCE, which happened to be the century that Greek engineers first invented the catapult. I was always confused as a child how people could actually die from crucifixion, because you're just sort of hanging there, so what really kills you other than dying of dehydration or exposure? It's the positioning of the arms that makes it such an effective method. When your arms are stretched out, the weight of the body pulls down on them and causes a huge amount of pressure on the lungs, making it really difficult to breathe. Death by crucifixion can come in many forms, including exhaustion, exposure, asphyxiation, loss of body fluids and organ failure. Spartacus was a Thracian gladiator, who along with several others was the leader of a great slave rebellion against the Roman Republic in 73 BCE, known as the Third Servile War. The rebellion started in a gladiatorial school in Capua, belonging to Lentulus Batiatus. It's said that 70 slaves formed the start of the rebellion, but over the next two years the ranks swelled to 70,000. Following many battles between the rebels and the Roman legions, the final battle took place in 71 BCE in modern-day Saenertia, 50 miles east of Naples. It is assumed that Spartacus himself died in this battle, but his body was never found. 6,000 survivors of the revolt were captured by the romans and crucified their bodies lining 125 miles of the appian way this was the main route at the time between rome and capua which intended to send a warning to all of the slaves who rose up against their masters the rebels were left for death many dying every day from heat exhaustion starvation and thirst They were not taken down for weeks and slaves were deliberately taken along the road to Rome so they would know that this fate awaited any that rebelled. If crucifixion isn't quite cruel enough way to die, the ancient Persians also created this next horror. Since ancient times, the phrase milk and honey has been associated with prosperity and abundance. So how did the ancient Persians turn such a luxurious combination into a way of getting rid of people? Scaffism is the process of putting two hollowed out boats, one on top of the other, and putting the victim inside. The person is covered in milk and honey, as well as being fed as much as possible. They're then left there in the hot sun, where they begin to get bothered by insects. As time passes, they are kept alive by being fed yet more of the sweet concoction, but by this point, they have nowhere to use the bathroom. So this horrific boat prison becomes a festering pool of grossness, which in turn becomes a haven for flies and other insects. The victim's body begins to become a host for these insects and they are slowly eaten alive. It usually takes a few weeks for the poor soul to finally succumb to this horror and perish. As we hop forward 400 years, we get to hear about the Romans and two of their most infamous emperors. Caligula was one of the most tyrannical and cruel rulers that Rome ever saw. The only positive thing I have to say about him is that he was a historical hottie, but as we know, that tells you absolutely nothing about someone's character or nature. He ruled the empire for almost four years in the early first century and was responsible for the death of many of Rome's citizens and placed little value on human life. To give you an idea of how unstable his mind was, at one point he planned to invade Britain but instead declared war upon the sea and Poseidon himself, taking shells as spoils. I do like a bit of beachcombing, but this is taking it a bit far. Caligula revelled in seeing executions and often threw prisoners to his menagerie of wild beasts, but not before their tongues were gouged out so they wouldn't make too much noise and disturb the guests. He is also reported to have thrown people in cages and sawed them in half. A couple of emperors later comes yet another delightful Roman ruler in the form of Emperor Nero, who we heard about briefly in the third episode on sugar. Also reported to be mentally unbalanced, a rumoured favourite of his was named the Roman candle. The victim was tied to a stake and covered with flammable pitch, then set alight, slowly burning to death from the feet up. Nero was so twisted that the stakes were sometimes used simply to provide lighting for his evening parties. Time to head to the Middle Ages. The practice of death by elephant, death by elephant, what? Yes, death by elephant, was a common method of public execution used in Southeast Asia, predominantly India, from the Middle Ages until as recently as the 19th century. Most commonly owned by royalty, the elephants were used to signify both the ruler's absolute power and his ability to control wild animals. These executions were based on an elephant's ability to crush the victims to death, obviously, usually standing on their head or abdomen. This method was used for enemy soldiers, petty criminals and even tax evaders, so Amazon should be glad that it's 2021. While head stomping was the vanilla method of execution, some authorities decided to get creative and trained elephants to slice victims into bits with the help of blades attached to their tusks. The Romans, Carthaginians and ancient Macedonians occasionally used elephants for executions as well. Deserters, prisoners of war and military criminals are recorded by ancient chroniclers to have been put to death by elephant smashing. Now, we're not leaving the Middle Ages, but we are leaving Asia, heading towards Scandinavia. The Vikings are an infamous seafaring people from Scandinavia who established a name for themselves by being fierce warriors and plundering whatever they could get their hands on. They are often portrayed as a violent and bloodthirsty people, which is not surprising considering this next method of execution that was reserved for defeated chieftains or kings, the Blood Eagle. This may conjure images of a person being pecked to death by eagles, which would be Gopin. But what it actually was is much, much worse. The tools required for this execution include an axe, some salt and a bit of rope to tie the person in place, obviously. The victim is put on his knees and tied to two posts either side of him. The axe is then used to hack open the skin on his back until it is ripped away from the muscle. The ribs are then broken away from the spine and opened outwards. His lungs are then pulled out and laid onto the top of the splayed ribs, which are then sprinkled with salt. This effect turns the victim's innards into wings. If you are unlucky enough not to die of shock, asphyxiation and blood loss will get you soon after. Legend has it that this was the fate of King Aela of Northumbria in 867 in retaliation for the killing of perhaps one of the most famous Vikings of all time, Ragnar Lothbrok. As the accounts of the Blood Eagle are recalled around 300 years after the events, some historians question whether it was actually practised. But that would make this section very boring, wouldn't it? Take it with a pinch of lung salt, maybe. They can take our lives, but they can never take our freedom! OK, it sounds a bit gross coming out of an English mouth and I do apologise, but I'm not about to start firing off a Scottish accent. Probably an easy guess as to where we'll be going next. William Wallace was made a household name in the mid-90s by Mel Gibson in Braveheart. Despite the fact that my A-level history teacher said it was totally historically inaccurate, it gives you a good visual for the next method of execution, reserved for men who are deemed to be traitors to the crown. Wallace was born in 1270 into a Scotland where King Alexander III's reign had seen a period of peace between Scotland and England. In 1286, however, King Alexander died, and arguments over who should succeed him threatened to plunge Scotland into civil war. The Scottish nobles invited King Edward I of England to arbitrate, which turned out to be a bit of an error. Edward pushed for John Balliol, provided he recognised the English king's overlordship of Scotland, and then proceeded to completely undermine him. This didn't go down well with the Scots, who forced King John to sign a treaty with France to aid them in the fight against Edward and the English. Edward I invaded Scotland in 1296 and forced King John to abdicate, which was the catalyst for the wars of Scottish independence. William Wallace has a reputation of being one of the greatest Scottish heroes that ever lived. A fierce warrior, Wallace made major contributions to Scotland's freedom and independence from England. He was infuriated by the insurgents of English soldiers across Scotland and, among others, incited a rebellion to take on the foreign invaders. The death of his wife at the hands of a sheriff from Lanark turned Wallace's campaign against the English from an act of national liberation into a hate-filled personal vendetta. He travelled to the town, decapitated the sheriff and set fire to his house. The town's population rose up and the entire English garrison was forced out. Over the next seven years, Wallace and his army were involved in many famous battles which handed them victories as well as defeats. The final battle for Wallace, however, was the Battle of Falkirk, which saw Wallace arrested for treason and taken to London for his execution. His response to the treason charge was, I could not be a traitor to Edward, for I was never his subject. He was paraded through the city naked and taken to Smithfield. He was then hanged almost to the point of death, castrated and disembowelled, before finally he was beheaded. His head was covered in tar and put on display at London Bridge, along with other traitors. His body was cut into quarters and displayed in Newcastle, Stirling, Berwick-upon-Tweed and Perth. Being hundred and quartered wasn't an execution method save for any old crime. Its severity was seen to fit the crime, as treason against the monarch was the worst crime that could be committed in England at the time. The last man to be hung, drawn and quartered was a Scotsman named David Tyree, after being convicted as a French spy in 1782. Let's do a little 200-year jump through the ages and head to the land of beautiful wine and cheeses. France, obviously I mean France. Being burnt at the stake has a long history and many societies have used it for many criminal activities such as treason, heresy and witchcraft. A very well-known person to be burnt at the stake was a peasant girl turned military leader Jeanne d'Arc. Joan of Arc in English but she was French wouldn't she? Thank you to the wonderful Marie for help with the pronunciation. Born around 1412, at the tender age of 16, Jeanne believed that God had chosen her to leave France to victory in its long-running war with England. In 1428, Jeanne cut her hair off, dressed in men's clothes, and convinced the future Charles VII to give her an army. She arrived to successfully fend off the Siege of Orleans, dressed in white armour, and riding a white horse. In the spring of 1430, Jeanne was ordered by Charles to confront an assault on Compiegne. Unfortunately, she was knocked off her horse and taken prisoner by the people of Burgundy, loyal to the English crown. Jeanne was handed over to the English, where she was to answer to 70 charges, which included witchcraft, heresy and dressing like a man. All of these things I am guilty of, though Jeanne herself was not. Charles VII did absolutely nothing to support her, because he didn't want to be associated with an accused heretic or witch despite all she had done for both him personally as well as the people of France. Jeanne spent a year in prison before she finally relented and signed a confession denying she had ever received divine instruction. At the age of 19, Jeanne was taken to the old marketplace of Rouen and burned alive at the stake. In some cases of burning at the stake, small gestures were given to shorten the victim's suffering. These included attaching a container of gunpowder to the victim, which would explode when heated by the fire and kill the victim instantly. Burning at the stake was a traditional form of execution for women found guilty of witchcraft. It was also used against so many people and in so many cultures and times that I'd be here all day if I listed them all. But in short, people like burning other people. Let's travel another few years later and head a little bit further east to Romania. The inspiration for Count Dracula is attributed to a ruler of Wallachia, which is a region in modern-day Romania. Thank you to my friend Yola for that pronunciation, though I'm pretty sure I got it very horribly wrong. Vlad III, Dracula, or as he is better known, Vlad the Impaler, ruled in the mid-15th century and was not a very nice boy. Not at all. Within five years of his reign, Vlad had already beheaded, boiled, burned, skinned, and maimed enough people to earn a reputation for cruelty. But he wasn't called Vlad the Boiler, was he? His favourite method of dispatching people was, as his name suggests, impaling. It sounds like a pretty non-technical form of execution, but get this, he actually dedicated a lot of time to figuring out the best way to impale people without piercing any vital organs, so that they took ages to die. Death ranged from a few hours right up to a few days of torture before you were finally blessed with the sweet embrace of death. A 1499 German woodcutting shows Vlad eating while some of his victims die in front of him. It's said that one of his servants gagged while serving him, being unable to stomach the situation. Vlad always had a stack of poles ready, and the servant was swiftly added to the ranks. Vlad had been having a to-and-fro with the Ottoman Empire because he refused to pay the annual tribute the Ottomans demanded from their non-Muslim neighbours. This made the Sultan mad, so lots of raiding and stabbing happened. At one point in 1462, the fighting came to a swift halt when the Ottomans were pushing into Vlad's territory, until eventually they came right up to Vlad's castle. The site that met their eyes has been referred to as the Forest of Corpses. Accounts say that the castle was surrounded by 20,000 impaled men, women and children, covering an area of seven acres. The Ottomans then decided it was time to forget about the tribute and fuck off home. Other notable instances of unusual death sentences include being ripped apart by horses, which was used from the 7th century onwards, the Mongols, who rolled people up in a carpet and got a horse to s- trample them, basically, in the 13th century. China's death by a thousand cuts in the 16th century, where bits of victims were cut off until they eventually died, sometimes taking up to two days. And, of course, the famous guillotine used in the French Revolution in the 18th century. Viva la France! Humans are gross. Yet myself and many others will continue to be dark tourists when learning about humanity's cruel and sadistic history. My fascination started when I was a child and I saw a depiction of a torture chamber in a book my grandad bought me on a visit to Harlick Castle in North Wales. I can't have been more than eight years old, but I still distinctly remember the depiction of a poor soul about to get a red-hot poker shoved in his eye. This would have been around the time that I started becoming fascinated with history. And here I am, yammering on about it every week, which I hope you enjoy as much as I do. And that's your lot today, history fans. Thank you so much for taking the time to listen. Be sure to share with other history nerds if you enjoyed it, and to get a shout out in a future episode, leave a five star review on iTunes. Reviews really help the podcast grow, and more importantly, I like to hear people say nice things about me. This week's five star reviews, here we go! Yolanta AB says, Thoroughly enjoyed listening to this episode. I love the bite-sized information content in it and the pace of delivery is just right for me. I'm very picky with this too. Natalie doesn't unnecessarily dwell on the point after she gets it across. The podcast succeeds in making you imagine a picture and uses very clever and funny comparisons to illustrate the key aspects. I'm looking forward to the next episode. Bumblebee says, Brilliant, informative, humour-smattered podcast about some fascinating historical topics will make you laugh, cringe and audibly exclaim, Oh my gosh! Loud enough for all your colleagues in the office to hear. Cannot wait for the next episode. Enjoy! Thank you as ever for your kind words. To get in touch, you can follow me on Twitter at underscore Across the Ages or you can like my page on Facebook at Across the Ages Pod. Keep an eye out for the next episode where I'll be delving into another topic, Across the Ages.